Hey, Scott. Yes, sir. Have you ever heard of a little movie called Poltergeist? I have, as a matter of fact. Have you seen it? Yes. Have you seen it on the big screen? Yes, but I'm going to say no for the purposes of this because I know where you're <laughs> yes. going. Yes, this will definitely help me if you say no. Well, no. I have good news for you, Scott, because we have the ability to watch Poltergeist, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary. We can see it on the big screen the way it was meant to be seen. Thanks to Turner Classic Movies, who is teaming up with Fathom Events to do a special retrospective screening in theaters September 25th, 26th, and 28th. I don't know what 27th did to uh, not get some Poltergeist love. No Poltergeist for you, 27th. (laughs) You know what you did. This is really uh, exciting to me because this is one of my all-time favorite movies. Seeing it on the big screen can't be beat. There's something about watching that movie with an audience. The awe, the scares, the Jerry Goldsmith score. I mean, everything about it is screams. Watch this on the big screen. So um, I highly recommend everybody listening to this. Give it a shot if you've never gotten the chance to see Poltergeist on the big screen. And... If you go to this event, you not only get the movie, but you'll get some insights from Turner Classic Movie host Ben Mankiewicz. So grab the fam, get the tickets, and head on out to see Poltergeist at the end of September. Very exciting stuff. And uh, I am here with this week's uh, Fangoria House ad, uh, which you may remember from all of our previous episodes. (laughs) In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and Fangoria is better than ever. Each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page head to fangoria.com right now to learn more and to subscribe and while you're there make sure to enter the promo code kingcast to save 25 percent off your yearly subscription and with all that said on with the show hi my name is stephen king Sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the Kingcast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi. And I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. Got a fun one for you today, folks. Today we are joined by Mr. Greg Matola, the director of such films as Superbad, Adventureland, Paul, and TV series like Arrested Development, The Newsroom, and Dave, which, by the way, if you haven't seen Dave, you need to get on that shit right now. Uh, his upcoming movie is Confess Fletch, and we will be talking about that and the wonderful King slash George A. Romero collaboration creep show. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Greg Matola to the KingCast stage. Hey, Eric and Scott. It is a pleasure to be here. Yeah, a pleasure a to pleasure have to you. talk to you. Yeah. Um, where do I start here? Um, <laughs> for any <laughs> any one of our listeners who doesn't know this about me, I am a huge like died in the wool Fletch fan. I watched the original every year on my birthday. You know, uh, I haven't read all the books, but I've I've read a, a good number of them and uh, just love the character. I, I, I love Chevy during that period, too. Yeah, me and, too. And you have made uh, Confess Fletch, which, you know, they've been trying to get a new Fletch off the ground for so many years. And it's gone through so many iterations that when this one was announced, I was like, yeah, we'll see. 
because like so many <laughs> of the other ones. Yeah, it's like the cr- rebooting the crow or one of these other movies <laughs> yeah. that they keep threatening to make and then never actually doing it. But uh, I'm very happy to say, and I want to impress this upon our audience, that not only did you pull it off, but the movie is fucking great and very, very funny. Uh, so congratulations on that, first and foremost. Thank you, Scott. I, I, I appreciate it very much. And it's a very um, uh, loyal, faithful adaptation because this podcast is so much about the adaptation process. I'm curious to hear from someone who's recently taken on an adaptation of their own, not King, but McDonald. How do you approach the the act of adapting something? Well, the way this went down was uh, John Hamm came to me a couple of years ago and said, um, Miramax owns all of the Fletch books, except for the first one. And he loved Fletch, the movie, when it came out, which inspired him to go off and read the books. His his story, if we believe it, is that he was so broke, he stole the books from a Walden Books <laughs> at a mall. Um, and Fuck, maybe... that takes me back. Go, oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I know. Walden Books, remember? I... I, I Sorry. I bought many a Stephen King, and uh, and as a a uh, naughty ten to twelve year old, uh, uh, those little five dollar dirty joke or gross joke books. You guys remember those things? Though they were like yep. neon colors on the outside. Like one would be neon pink, the other would be neon green, and they'd be these little teeny tiny thin books. And uh, thinking back on those uh, jokes that I was so gleefully telling my my friends and and the cool members of my family. Uh, probably not something that uh, even adults should be <laughs> should be saying in those things. But goddamn, sorry, tangent. But uh, that instantly flashed <laughs> me back to being being twelve, <laughs> trying to hide that in one of those books in my back pocket. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, there was a Walden Books at the Walt Whitman Mall on Long Island where I grew up, and 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 um, that and what was the place that had all like the dirty puzzles? Um, like Spencer's 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 yeah. gifts. Yeah. yeah. I spent a long time at Spencer's gifts, um, trying to sneak looks at, at hot girl posters. Um, and the so, only so, store in the world where you can get, uh, like a fart machine and a disco ball all in one stop. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why they went out of business. That's incredible <laughs> service they were doing for, the, right. for America. And there was one in every mall in America. There was <laughs> yeah. without exception, there was a not a topic. single mall that, yeah. that existed without a Spencer's gifts in there. Did you guys have the timeout video arcades at your malls in your time part of the out. world? Uh, it wasn't called timeout, but we definitely had an arcade. Mm, yeah, I, had, I think that's what it was called at, at my mall. Mine was Aladdin's Castle in in, in my mall Ooh. that I grew up with. And my mom, the coolest birthday party. I know this is. I'm totally once again derailing the thing. Uh, but the coolest birthday party I ever had was I was 10 years old when I and my mom like rented out the arcade after hours, and so like it was the one time I was cool you know, for, for the kids at school. Yeah, so many kids accepted my invitation to that one where it's like, they just turned on free play on all the machines. And, and it was like, I, you know, I, there are pictures of me looking the happiest I've ever looked in my acid wash jeans <laughs> and my like <laughs> troubling uh, fat kids wearing a turtle tight turtleneck sweater. Oh you know? no. But I looked happy. I looked, I looked very happy. No, that is badass. That's totally badass. In case like I a little that teenage mutant Ninja Turtles machine there. Okay, so John so Hamm is stealing books. So John Hamm is stealing books, and uh, he loved the books, and he saw that the books, you know, tonally had some differences from the movie, 
and that's stuck in his head. Uh, and, you know, it's just one of those fantasy things. One kicks back and thinks, oh, wouldn't it be great to make those someday? So when he approached me, I had heard of the books. I knew the books existed. And, and I always thought, oh, well, I'd really enjoy those. Detective stories are amongst my favorite types of fiction in movies. Um, and so I immediately went off and, and read a bunch and loved them. And the one John was thinking would make sense to adapt would be uh, Confess Fletch, which was the second novel that was written. And, uh, you know, we had a discussion about the fact that it is a bit daunting to take on this character when everyone associates him with one particular actor. And it's a beloved movie. It's a movie John and I both loved. I mean, I, I grew up for whatever reason, when I was eight, my parents let me watch the you know SNL from the very first season, and Chevy was a hero to me. And yeah. I I know that there were various reasons the other Fletch movies didn't get made, but I, I have to think that one of them is like that's a little tricky to take that character on. It's you know Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe has been played by about fifteen actors between the movie and TV adaptations. Mm. Uh, so at least you know he's been broken in. Right. <laughs> you know, from from Humphrey Bogart to to Elliot Gould, there has been a lot of interpretations of of that character, but only one Fletch. Um, so, but we decided let's let's we don't know. I don't think we'll have the money to make a period piece, and and also the novel. All the novels have kind of a satiric or social commentary side, and and the stuff about the seventies that he was talking about in that novel is interesting, but not necessarily as relevant now. Hmm. Um, so we said, we'll make a contemporary, um, but we'll try and capture the tone of the book and not try to, uh, steal anything from Chevy because a lot of the comedy slapstick disguises, uh, funny, famous names, you know, saying his name is Ted Nugent right. or uh, Mr. Poon, you know, yeah. Uh, um, uh, what was the doctor name? Um, oh, uh, um, Dr. Rosen Rosen. Dr. Rosen Rosen. Yeah. All that stuff, you know, which really makes me laugh, but it's like, that's his, that's Chevy's thing. We, that's, we'd, we'd, we'd just be stealing someone else's joke. Um, so we decided not to do that stuff. And we decided to lean a little bit more into this kind of detective who done it. Um, and we knew that, that in and itself was a bit of a risk because it, it wouldn't be quite as overtly comedic as the original. So we had to try and find the comedy slightly different way. But I also, you know, knowing John, I kind of knew how to write for him, but the process, what ended up happening was before I even got involved, John and his producer, uh, Connie Tavel had, hired uh, Zev Barrow, very funny writer, to do an adaptation. And I had read some of Zev's outlines and, and he was using, he was moving away from the book quite a bit. Um, and I wanted to give him his, you know, a chance to write his version. And when he turned in a script, John and I said, this is really funny. This is a great movie for Chevy. Um, he wrote a version that was very nostalgic for the original, but in a way that felt like it demanded John would have to do a Chevy Chase impersonation for 90 minutes. Um, and talking it over with Zev, we decided I would take the next pass. And I went back to the book, put in a bunch of characters and scenes and plot things that were from the book that weren't in Zev's script and, and took pieces of what he wrote that I, I liked the best 
and made it a kind of drier comedy of manners, you know, dialogue driven comedy slash detective story. Mm. So that's, that was essentially the process. Although I, you know, I did go back to the book and I would underline lines that I loved and, 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 you know, there's a bunch of lines from the book in the movie. Um, there's one, you may notice it's got, there's one direct line steal from the original Fletch, uh, which is, which is an Easter egg. Yeah. The most, uh, I know the, the most, line you're talking about too. You do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, when I got to the end, when I got to the end of that, that scene, uh, when I was, when I was writing that scene and John read it the first time, he, he suggested, why don't we use that line? Um, and I thought, Oh, that's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That'll, that's, that's a nice, funny thing to do. Um, and John did a very similar reaction to the line that like, <laughs> I think and, you go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. So no, uh, you go ahead. Cause that's, that's, that was, that was essentially how it began. Hmm. Well, I think you, everything you're saying, it re- reflects on screen. It's, um, it's not as, and I, and when I say this, I'm not, I'm not saying it in a negative way because I do love the original Fletch. Me but too. this version is not as, as, gimmicky to me you know with the costumes with the with the with the fake names and all of that shit and i think that uh that that works great for chevy's version of the character but i do think it would have been weird if you know uh this movie was doing that so it further separates itself from the original just in the process of removing that stuff and i think you um still still brought the goods uh, comedically by making the wordplay so sharp and you know this is a movie that you can't you, I, you couldn't watch this fucking around on your phone you know mm. what I mean like you really got to pay attention to the dialogue it's 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 rapid fire it's very dry humor the exact kind of thing that I respond to and um, I thought it was just a pleasure to listen to when I saw it I kept thinking like this is a thing I will have on the background on in the background while I'm working forever. And I can just pick up, watch five minutes of it, you know, and go back to whatever I was doing. Like, it's just, you kind of want to luxuriate in the, uh, just a rat-a-tat dialogue of it all. You know, that's, that's the prominent feature for me. Well, it was, you know, it, 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 I mean, I do love old movies and, um, you know, it's funny. I, I remember reading somewhere that, scripts for you know classic hollywood movies would run 140 150 pages and the movie would be 90 minutes it's because they talked so goddamn fast um and 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 it's you know and it's uh i i tried to be mindful of that as much as i could and also edit to that um and try to get the minute the movie under you know 100 minutes because i thought that's novel in this day and age to have a movie that that actually uh runs under 100 minutes um, it's, it's, you know, I know, I know what John can do and I really want, I was really hoping to show audiences some, you know, people know he's funny and he's been great and things, you know, in SNL, 30 Rock, uh, Kimmy Schmidt. Yeah. Um, but I wanted, this is a, a little bit different, a little more of a Cary Grantish rogue, um, smart ass guy who's also sometimes foolish but it's kind of endearing that even when he's wrong and he is wrong because who wants to see john ham be right for 100 minutes that'd be be really fucking annoying um and and so he but even when he's wrong he just sort of brushes it off and moves on he's 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 not 
he, you know, he's just, he kind of loves life and likes weirdos and, uh, you know, there's a lightness to it. There's, there's like no Don Draper in there, hmm. uh, except that he's still good looking. Um, I tried to undermine that as much as I could just out of revenge, but it didn't work. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I was thinking of movies from things like the thin man, yeah, um, one of my all time favorites. Yeah. Yeah. I love those movies. I love the Maltese Falcon. It's, that's one of my favorite films. Um, I, you know, and, and then I love the long goodbye. I love, you know, the, the 1970s spate of great, uh, noir detective movies would include that in Chinatown, of course. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I was trying to get my head around ways we could do it. Like, for instance, one thing I love about Chevy's version uh, is that it felt like Fletch's strategy was to walk into a situation and just confuse the fuck out of everybody to such an extent with so much chaos and what he was saying and doing that they just wouldn't they would they would lose the thread of reality <laughs> because he was so he was so right. nuts and so all over the place. And there's, there's kind of a Marx Brothers energy to that that I love. I absolutely love. And, and it was one of the things Chevy's was master of. Um, and I felt, well, that's not really the character in the book. So um, he does lie to people constantly. He does trick them, but in a slightly different way. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I, I really leaned into the, to the book version of the guy, but then at the same time had to make it all make sense for 2022. Right. Um, as I was, I was, as I was taking transposing characters from the book, and I also, you know, in Fletch's, in, in Chevy's version, he, everyone's kind of a straight man to him. I wanted to, to let the ensemble, one thing I kept noticing in the books is Fletch likes weirdos. He has an, an, <laughs> an affection for them. He likes authentic people. He hates phonies. He's a little bit of a Holden Caulfield. Uh, you know, he'll, 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 he'll fuck with people, but he do most, he really punches up. He only fucks with like rich ass, rich assholes. He doesn't, you know, he might lie to anybody at any given time, but he's not malicious except when he feels like it and feels that the person deserves it. Uh, so he has his own sort of ethos. Um, so yeah, so I, you know, had this great cast of people, some of whom I've worked with before that uh, were allowed to be funny too. And, and sometimes put Fletch on his back heels because they're kind of nuts. <laughs> I think my my favorite stretch of the the movie is when he goes to he's he's trying to oh, fuck now that I brought it up I'm probably going to fuck up the particulars of this. <laughs> it's when he's in the lady's house. I believe he's like pretending to be um like a fashion reporter or yeah. you know a yeah. style reporter or something. That yeah. that whole sequence is hysterically funny. And also, I would like to point out, uh, Kyle MacLachlan is extremely mm. funny in this. Uh, when, <laughs> like, the music he listens to, <laughs> and there's a, a part involving him with some some glow sticks that really, really needs to be seen if you're uh, even remotely a Kyle MacLachlan fan. Great little I- I I I kept I kept not calling cut when we were shooting that because I was just <laughs> laughing my ass off so much. I think I might have I might have driven him close to the edge of a heart attack. Um, uh, yes, Kyle was. There's a dancing sequence which it was. It pained me to have to make it a a proper length on screen because I kind of wanted to use all right. the footage. Um, yeah, Kyle's amazing. Anyone who's seen Portlandia knows how funny he is. Oh, um, totally. 
but uh, yeah, this was a fun character for him to play, and uh, he's such a great guy. Well, I'm I'm really excited that there's another Fletch movie out there that I can embrace now. You know, it seemed like we just weren't getting one of those for a while, I, and then it seemed increasingly unlikely that if there was one, it was going to be one that I would enjoy. You know, there were other. <laughs> iterations of it where i was like oh jesus not that filmmaker or oh god not that person in the lead role uh no problem with that here um (laughs) and and i also appreciated that that fletch's you know and this kind of goes to what you were saying earlier but he he reads more as an investigative journalist to me he's kind of shaggy a little rumpled around the edges um you you totally buy him in this i never really completely bought Chevy as as that uh, someone in that profession, but you just kind of go along with it for the reality of the movie. But I I did feel like that. It felt a little more authentic to me. And well, well, Chevy's you know so so likable and an asshole at the same time, but right. he doesn't he doesn't project a guy who cares all that much about. And and, <laughs> and there's an aspect where Fletch doesn't seem to care, but what he doesn't seem to care about is what anyone thinks of him. Um, there in the books, you can sense that he actually does care about justice being done. Um, he just doesn't care about things like the law or proprieties or, you know, those, those, those little things that get in the way. Um, so, so, you know, so John has that quality of, of, you know, being, being a also dramatic actor that invests or hopefully subtly invest a sense of like, yeah, I actually want to, you know, there's two mysteries. Most of the, most of the Fletch books always have two mysteries going at the same time, which makes it hard to condense to 90 minutes, but it's also part of the incredible fun of it. Um, Yeah. So John has that. Well, I, I I really do urge all of our listeners to check it out when it lands. Uh, It's, it's a blast. And especially if you like, you know, verbose, um, sharp, uh, I don't, I'm, the word is dry, but I don't want to use dry because now it sounds like, oh, that might be boring. But like, I'm, I'm saying dry in the sense of like our Armando Iannucci, you know, or something where the wordplay and the performances are what's driving the comedy versus, you know, something a little sillier or more overtly, you know, wacky. Um, yeah, it's not, it's, yeah, it's not super broad in a physical way. That's one of the things I love about, Ianucci and Veep is that it's insane what they're saying and the pace of it is is insanely fast but everyone's playing it really straight yeah. I mean they're all they're all it's it's pretty naturalistic the way they're acting in these as they say the most insane things mm-hmm. I let my son when he was about 10 watch every Veep episode and I thought well I do not <laughs> have to give him any kind of talk about the birds and the he's heard every <laughs> sick sexual thing ever <laughs> on that show but it's uh he laughed his ass off so. raised by veep <laughs> so okay, child services is on there <laughs> <laughs> so uh let's get into uh the stephen king business here yes um what is your stephen king origin story greg well i i you know i read salem's lot when I was a kid, that's the one I remember reading. I know I read other ones, but I, the movies and the books start to meld together. Mm. I certainly saw every Stephen King adaptation that came out in the seventies and eighties. Um, 
I don't know if I saw Carrie in a theater. Uh, I know I saw TV, the TV version of Salem's Lot and saw Christine and Dead Zone. And I'm a huge Kubrick nut and yeah. saw The Shining in the theater and and just it blew my mind. And I know Mr. King has some issues with the movie and I, and I understand them. I mean, he's, he's right that it's not telling the story he wrote exactly. And yet I can rewatch that movie <laughs> right. so many times. It's, it's on the list of movies like the Godfather, where if I come across it on TV, I'm not going anywhere. I'm, right. I'm in. It draws <laughs> you in and hooks you. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious if you saw it in the theater, um, I was obvious, I was, you know, uh, not born yet when it came out, <laughs> but I, my mother was a huge King fan. And I remember, you know, when I was a kid and like getting into King and stuff, you know, I discovered that there was a movie based on the shining and she was like, I've seen it. It's terrible. You're not going to like that. And I was like, <laughs> why is it terrible? And she said, well, it's, it, it's just not, it's not faithful to the book and blah, blah, blah. She said that, you know, she had seen it with my dad and like another couple went and they all hated it. And, you know, it, you know, in her version of events, you know, the whole audience turned on this film and tried to burn down the theater and blah, blah, blah. It was very dramatic. <laughs> um, but, you know, I ended yeah. up seeing it a few years later and I, I had no problem with it. Uh, mm. you, when, when you saw it in the theater, when it came out, you, you embraced it immediately then. I, I, that's my memory of it. Yeah. I mean, I think I also remember kind of a weird vibe in the theater where people were kind of like, what the fuck am I watching? <laughs> um, but yeah, it really, you know, I, my parents took me to see 2001 in a revival. I don't know what they were thinking, but it was, I think in 73, they re-released it in theaters. Um, so, so how old were you then? I was nine. And I think they fell asleep. And I think I was really fascinated. I was, I, 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 you know, didn't have a clue what was happening, but it really stuck with me. The imagery really stuck with me. Um, and it wasn't for many years before I got to see it again. Uh, and in fact, I, it started to become like, did I see that movie or not? It's sort of mm. like a dream. You know, I'd look at pictures of it in Starlog magazine and saying like, I, think i saw that my parents would say yeah we took you to that um mm -hmm. but it but it was very yeah it was it, it was wild so i i i already had a feeling about kubrick um and uh like that's different and i like it um so yeah mm -hmm. so i remember you know just the atmosphere and the visual stuff and the weirdness of it and the creepiness of it was on another level to me um yeah, I remember thinking that was fucking rad. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's, it's it's Scott's not like wrong though. People forget, but that movie was nominated for multiple Razzies in the very first Razzie, the year that the Razzies were yeah in operation, and like you know, Shelley Duvall unfortunately took the brunt of a lot of that criticism at, at that time. But uh, uh, you know, I think looking back now, her her performance is it's it's odd but it's perfect for the tone that uh yeah. uh that they're setting and you kind of need you in that world you need that character to break in a way that uh shelly duvall you know maybe maybe if uh, reports are to be believed uh, actually had to go there to, to get that, <laughs> yeah. that performance but yeah um you know but it's it's something that that really sticks with you um and uh, you know I, I think it's a masterpiece i've always loved it but you know again i 
I think I probably came to it after the reevaluation had already happened on it, you know, because I, I must have not seen it until the mid to late. 80s at the, at the very earliest I think I was a young kid but but I saw it you know uh, around that time but like it's funny doing research for the show there's you know I've I've watched I can't tell you how many tw- 10 12 hours worth of like old recorded uh uh video like uh Q&As with King you know that go back to right. like uh you know library and college tours and stuff and the closer that you get to the release of The Shining, the more vocal his fans are about how terrible the movie is, and <laughs> and uh, and it's really fascinating. Though I know this, we're not here to talk about The Shining, but it is fascinating to think about that disconnect at the time because King is, you know, got very vocal for a long time and kind of stopped whenever he got the rights to redo it, you know, as the his version for TV. Um, but uh, for a long time earlier on, he was like way nicer to the movie, like right after it came out. And then you can almost sense that it's like through all these fan interactions where they're saying, no, your work is brilliant. And they and this dude, Hollywood, fucked it up and and all this <laughs> stuff that maybe that got in his head a little bit. He, he never was like from the get go. He was never like, oh, this isn't mine. You know, he was like, uh, he, I think he even had like an interview with like the month it came out or something going, I've seen it. It's not for me. Or whatever, you know, but, uh, uh, but he was like always more like, oh, I think, you know, it was just my material wasn't, I think the quote he used and it'll, that I always remember is that he says he felt like he gave Stanley Kubrick a live hand grenade with that story and he did the best that he could, uh, with it. (laughs) Um, and, uh, but then that quickly evolved to like, yeah, you know, Kubrick's just cold and the, the movies or the books warm and, and he, he just can't get that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and that makes sense. I mean, you know, I I would consider them both great artists and great artists have their have their their way of doing things. They have right. a real sensibility and it's and and I could see where Kubrick's sensibility and Stephen King's sensibility are very different. Right. Oh, sure. Um Definitely. and 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 I I think those criticisms are 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 not invalid. Right. Um Luckily for us, we can we can enjoy both. Yes, yeah, we're, we're the ultimate winners here, and I think they do work as a good uh, pairing. I've talked about that a couple of times on the show, where I think that the book and the movie actually complement each other, and you know, and fill in different different needs and wants for the for the audience. Uh, but we are not here to talk about The Shining. We are here to talk about Creep Show. This is. Another fascinating thing, and this kind of goes back to the conversation we were having about uh, your adaptation of, of Fletch, where, you know, it, it's not wholly one thing. It's it's a horror movie and it's a comedy, but it's not a horror comedy that Creepshow is. Right. It, it is so, even though it's aping so much of that EC comic style, that Tales from the Crypt yep. thing that you know that King and Romero, like, just loved um down to like there's some almost comic book frames in, in this movie uh, yeah. in, in, especially in the Jordy Verrill segment um there's but but you know Creepshow still manages to be its own unique thing that I just I haven't seen replicated it's an anthology you know but it's it's a cheesy but it's also got some legit scary shit in it you know the thing in the crate you know gave a whole generation nightmares you know yep. it's like uh, I don't know. Creepshow is a fascinating one. And it's also one where you get like these two titans of, of horror Romero coming off of Dawn of the Dead and, you know, King coming off of his er- early run of, you know, 
of just classic novels and, you know, kind of them meeting on screen. It's so it's always going to be a fascinating movie for me. I have the poster up in my living room, actually. It's a great poster. Yeah. (laughs) The kid reading the comic book and the, 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 uh, the creep outside. Yeah. It's um, but yeah, so maybe we could start with that and kind of the uniqueness of it. Um, I'm going to assume the audience is, it probably at this point knows what, what creep show is and doesn't need a, a huge primer on this. Yeah, probably not. Um, if not, please pause the show and go to Wikipedia and look that up or <laughs> check out our, our previous episode on this, uh, from last year where I think we laid it out in uh pretty excruciating detail yes. over the course of it. Was it eight hours long that we, uh, it was about one? three. That, that was the, it was a long one. It was a long yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just we won't, a, we a won't, qu- don't, don't worry, Greg, we won't make you stay here for three hours. I saw it in theater when it came out. Um, I have, I have some George Romero s- stories, which mm. is one of the reasons I, I picked it out, but I really did love it the first time I saw it. And I, you know, grew up on those, I grew up on comic books and I, and I remember all those EC comic books and the style in which they were, they were, you know, the, the way the stories were told and drawn the movie just nailed it and i went back and looked at some reviews from back in the day and of course you know people there were people who didn't like it saying it was you know the acting was wooden and the the stories weren't scary and and i just think they completely missed the boat um the tone of it to me is absolutely perfect because it also gets to like they verge on something really sick that when you're an adolescent boy <laughs> reading it, it's not just scary because the situation is scary. It's scary because you realize human nature um, can get really dark. Mm. And um, our reaction, because it's not just the monsters or people, the undead um, or creatures rising from the sea. They're all kind of, morality tales in there there's yeah. they're all about how people are craven and by being craven they've somehow put a curse upon themselves and and that aspect of it in in the comic books is played for laughs or for silliness but it's always there i mean there's always there's always a point to the story even though the fun is the horror down to the the comic book frames and and around certain shots and transitions and then things would dissolve into a drawing um the comic book illustration i i i I love everything about it Hmm. and and i was looking up um how old stephen king must have been when he did i think he was about 35 Hmm. which reminded me like he'd already had written a shitload of great novels at by the age of 35, <laughs> yeah, which is, a, you know, yeah. And yeah, fuck him for one. <laughs> yeah. We yeah, say that with that love. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, and Jordy Verrill is, is hilarious. I mean, it is such a hilarious, I rewatched it this week and, uh, I was laughing my ass off. It's just, it's, it's, and yet it's somehow as, as insane as a performance as it is, it's sad and touching at the same time. <laughs> yeah. That's the story just to refresh people's mind. That's the one where the meteor crashes in the, in the, the poor dumb bastard's yard and he touches it and it uh, slowly grows moss and he turns into a giant moss man. But like the, I, he, 
King describes playing that his direction from Romero for playing that part in the the movie was to play it as broad as a freeway. And he said he took that advice to heart <laughs> and, uh, uh, and boy does he, but there is something really disturbing about the end of it because the whole thing is, is blatantly comedic, you know, King, yeah. King's like not when we say overacting, it's, it's like on a whole nother level. He, he's, <laughs> yes. he, he's like silent film acting, you know, <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, but you know, at the end of the story, it's a sad story about a sad guy who only wanted the process of the, the idea of getting 50 bucks for this thing would have changed that dude's life. Right. He is a sad, lonely character who dies a sad, lonely death at his own hands. But like, yeah, <laughs> cause he like starts mumbling as he's taken over by this weed, you know, this moss thing that's growing over him and, and uh, you know, he ends up blowing his own head off to to uh, stop the itching. And it is, in the short story it's based on called Weeds is, is uh, you know, it's it's very affecting. There's, there is something about this that is, that one in particular that always stands out to me. I, if I had to pick one, I think that's probably my favorite of the, of the segments. That's right, folks. It's time for the mid-roll ad reads. we got two different sponsors for you today. Uh, I've got one. Eric's got the other. Let's start with mine. This week's episode is sponsored by The Retaliators in theaters for one night only on September 14th. That is, uh, well, when you're hearing this, that is tonight, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Michael Lombardi and Mark Menchaca star in this epic horror thriller fueled by a high-octane original soundtrack and can't-miss cameos by some of the biggest names in rock music including Five Finger Death Punch, Tommy Lee, Ice Nine Kills, and uh, Papa Roach. Papa Roach. Haven't heard from those guys in a while. Featuring a 100% score on Rotten Tomatoes, don't miss the film that critics are calling viscerally entertaining. The Retaliators in theaters for one night only on September 14th. Once again, that is tonight when you're hearing this. Get your tickets now at retaliatorsmovie.com. Well done, Scott. And I'm here once again to talk about a little thing called microdosing. That's yes. right. It is time for Lumi Labs. Quam, Yay, quam, quam. <laughs> I don't have the DJ air horn ready. Damn it. You know him by now if you've listened to the show, but in case you've like skipped the ads in the middle before and you somehow listen to this one, don't do that, babies. We try to make it entertaining. Yeah. Even yeah. Even when we're doing ad reads. Plus, uh, we love the Lumi Labs folks and their products, and all of you should give them a shot. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And if you do not know what Lumi Labs is, this is a company that has a line of THC gummies built specifically for microdosing, which means, well, you take a little bit at a time. So you're not walking around stoned off your ass all day. You just feeling nice and relaxed. That's right. That's absolutely right. And that's how we've been using it. They've sent us some. We've enjoyed it. I use it particularly to help me get to sleep uh, because my internal clock is all sorts of messed up. And the Lumi gummies have been a godsend in helping me relax, just let go, go to sleep at a decent hour, despite my internal clock. I've started taking one right smack dab in the middle of the day, Eric. I got to be honest with you. And uh, it is a very good way to ward off any uh stressors that might be occurring uh uh during the course of of one's natural day at work or seeing the news or um having to be on social media or any of the other things that cause us to be a little on edge takes the edge right off lovely feeling 
Indeed. And the best part about Lumi's THC gummies is that they are available nationwide. They're not affected by your state's marijuana laws because they use a synthetic THC strain. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com. And if you like what you see, you can use the code KINGCAST to save 30% off your first order and get free shipping. Sizable Can't discount. That. Again, that's microdose.com code KINGCAST. All right. Well, uh, all that said, let's get back to the show, shall we? We shall. I was thinking about that before we recorded this one, like mm. what my favorite story is. I think it's either I think it's either that or um, something to tide you over. Mm. They're both very different, but I think that I don't know. I, I think that King fits perfectly into the exact tone that they're that they're aiming for here. You know, that EC comics kind of goofy, but, you know still scary thing uh the overacting works his face is very expressive yeah uh-huh. yes. up until it's covered in moss and then it has a shotgun in it but you know <laughs> up until that point it's uh he's got a like a kind of an elastic face and uh, oh yeah he's he's great playing a, a bumbling fucking backwards yeah. yokel and i quote that like not on a daily basis, but definitely on a like a regular basis. We can say, I mean, every just a, if I need to randomly exclaim something like around the house where I just feel the urge to say something, I just go meteor shit. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. It's, it's it's almost a tick for me. I don't, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it's, uh, but yeah, I, you know, oh, Jordy Verrill, you lunkhead, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, I don't know. about his so bad lonely. luck, and yeah, yeah. I like in the dream sequence, he goes to the Department of Meteors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, his like dreams are his, yeah, his dreams are deeply unimaginative. <laughs> yeah. and, he, and, he, and he tries to tries to bargain for, I think, 100 bucks or something. It's, he tries to get him yep. up to, or 200 at the most. And then, he, then yeah, and then he had, when he has a broken meteor, it's, it's the dream gets worse. Um, <laughs> and then he has and, those nightmares about... Uh, uh, you know, once once he touches it and and like he's getting those blisters on his fingers and he he has those nightmares of like them going, we're gonna have to remove the whole arm and you <laughs> yeah. know the mad doctor style, which uh, it's it, weirdly enough, I know it's a joke and 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 it's played for laughs totally in the movie, but that is like a super common fear. If you see something wrong, you're like, I don't want to go see a doctor because they're gonna tell me the worst possible news and I can just be blissfully ignorant if I don't go. Yeah, and then I loved how in the movie when it gets to a certain crescendo of 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 tales of the cryptness, the all the the color scheme changes and all the bright colored lights come on people's faces, and it's sort of you know I feel like it's something like Joe Dante did in in his Twilight Zone oh, for uh, sure. segment, and it's and it's great, it's really great. I mean, it's really it's really tongue in cheek. Um, um, but there's also something, yeah, there's something genuinely disturbing in each one. I also love, uh, the E.G. Marshall cockroach one. They're creeping yeah. up on you. Uh, he's very funny in it. Um, he's such a dick and, <laughs> and he really, he really goes for it. Um, and it unfolds in this great way. And, uh, yeah, it's that. And then the, the, the fun of seeing Tom Savini as one of the garbage men at the end is, mm-hmm. you know, Always happy to see Tom Savini pop up. Are you, <laughs> a, are you a guy who's weirded out by cockroaches? I, you know, I live in New York City. Yes, I, I, I fucking hate them. So <laughs> they, it made my skin crawl. 
to watch that. I re I, I was telling Eric, I rewatched it the other day and it, yeah, it makes, it really freaks me out. Right on. <laughs> I, would you say that the cockroach one or just real quick, is that that would be your pick for the favorite of the segment? I think, I think the one I enjoy the most is, is Jordy Verrill. I'd probably say cockroach second and something tied you over third, but you know, there's something I like about all of them. I love, First of all, on Father's Day, I've never seen Knight Riders, but I know mm-hmm. that Stephen King had a tiny part in that, and mm-hmm. and um, Ed Harris has a big part in it. And looking up Ed Harris's credits, it doesn't seem like it seems like he jumped from doing these insane Romero films to the right stuff. <laughs> you know, he went from a guy doing these like insane right. low budget movies to you know this movie that made him into a character actor star basically overnight. Um, And the fact that Romero knew that Ed Harris was like this, you know, very handsome, but great actor um, Mm. makes me really want to go off and see Knight Riders. Finally. Uh, (laughs) It's a wild movie, man. It's been a minute since I've watched it too, but I'm trying to go back and discover all those in in any of those like non dead Romero movies. It, it like it's either for in my experience it's either going to be one of the worst movies you've ever seen or <laughs> just like like just bonkers balls to the wall like I'm um, just amazing like Martin is an incredible Martin, movie yeah. uh, his season of the witch not so so much now, this isn't Halloween three season of the witch by the way if you're a, a, a horror fan uh, not disparaging that one L- love me some Halloween three but he oh, Romero yes. made a movie called season of the witch that is for me, very hard to get through. Um, and Night Riders is that just weird, like wild swing, you know, telling like this <laughs> medieval night tale with motorcycle, you know, bikers essentially. Um, but yeah, I know what you mean. Like Ed Harris is such a fucking weird, great actor, right? Like he's he's kind of the antithesis of the that era's leading men, right? Because that era's leading men who were talking like Richard Gere and and that, you know, and here here you have like a balding kind of goofball with like these crazy intense eyes. Yeah. You know? Disco like, dancing. Is, disco disco dancing, dancing his ass yeah. off. Yeah. Uh but yeah, no, I love Ed Harris. Like there's there's a he he'll be in bad movies, but he's he's uh what, you know, uh, some of my friends and I call a never bad. He's never bad in a movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I've always everything I've ever seen him in, he's been great. I just relaunched um, um History of Violence not ooh, long ago. Fuck. God, he's so fucking good in that. Yeah, he is. You know, it's a great underrated uh uh Ed Harris performance in a movie is a movie called Enemy Oh shit, I just blinked on it. Is Enemy of the State? The Will Smith one? Nope. Enemy at the Gates. Oh, I mean yeah, I've never seen that one. All right, let me Isn't yeah, Denzel in that one? No, it's Jude Law. It's it's a World War Two movie, uh, but yeah, no, Enemy at the Gates is the name of the movie, and it's uh, yeah, it's a World War Two drama where he's he's like this incredible German sniper going up against the oh, Russian right, sniper right. played by yeah. uh, uh, Jude Law, and like holy shit, is that by the end of that movie, like they have this mutual respect thing going on, but like you look into his eyes, and like that dude is just a fucking stone cold killer in that movie. And uh, he has the same feeling like of threat and menace and history of violence, which is what made me think of that. But yes, Ed Harris, you get the King cast thumbs up from, from us. <laughs> well done, Ed oh. Harris. You can continue your career. <laughs> so what's y'all's oh. least favorite segment in this? Mm. Think, then? Um, it's hard because I don't think there's one that really leaps out as like, eh, I can just skip that one. I think Father's Day, the Father's Day is just in and out so quickly. I think that yeah, it's probably not the strongest of the bunch. 
it's yeah it's one cool it's a it's a good tone setter and there's a reason why it's the first one up but it's and it is so quick i think that probably my least is favorite is the crate and i still really like that and i think it has the most iconic stuff in in the whole movie in it but i i that one just feels like the joke of the guy daydreaming about killing his wife uh just goes on for i don't know eight minutes too long it, that one feels the longest to me, and and yeah. I think that I'd probably have to default since I like all of the the stories in some to some degree. I'll have to default to the one that just feels like it overstays its welcome a bit, which to me is the crate. What what I liked about seeing it again is, and this will this will segue to my George Romero story, is that it shot at Carnegie Mellon, where I went to art school. Mm. I was an art student in Pittsburgh before I went to film school at Columbia, and. While I was at Carnegie Mellon, they didn't have any film classes. Um, I was I was pretty much seeing any movie that they showed on campus. Uh, I grew up in a pretty sheltered Long Island Catholic lower middle class household. I didn't. My parents didn't watch art films yet. Somehow they took me to two thousand and one, um, <laughs> and 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 uh, so I got to you know see a, catch up on a bunch of movies that I just didn't have access to um, or wouldn't have heard of. And as I was going, I don't want to be an artist. I want to make movies um, my freshman year and casting around for a place to take classes for it. I found a place called Pittsburgh Filmmakers. And it was this kind of consortium of, of documentary and, and real experimental filmmakers, people who were like into Stan Brackage and Maya Darren um, and people who were doing, you know, kind of Maisel's brother style documentaries. This guy named Tony Buba was my teacher there. And Tony made these great, kind of character-based documentaries about this town in Braddock where he grew up, where the steel mills were closing and he'd find some insane character in the area and, and use them as a focus to tell a story about uh, economically depressed America and how, how big business was fucking over the little man. And they were all, you know, had great social messages, but they were funny and they'd go around to festivals. And Tony's brother happens to be Pasquale Buba, who was um, George Romero's editor. Hmm. So when I asked Tony, could I ever like watch, how do I see a movie being shot? Do you know of anything happening in Pittsburgh? And he said, oh yeah, well, Romero's doing Day of the Dead. And he got me a job as an unpaid intern for about two weeks in the art department on Day of the Dead. No shit. Um, and my the jobs I remember doing, I remember seeing like Tom Savini around and seeing Romero around. And I guess Greg Nicotero was there, but I, I don't recall seeing him. I'm sure he was there um and i was doing things like making zombie vomit for (laughs) like bub's cage um who was you know the zombie that they've they've put in captivity to study uh and so i remember it was mostly glue and paint and rice krispies and we'd stick a rag in the in the bucket and then whip it against the wall (laughs) um so it (laughs) looked like bub had spewed in every single direction um and if you remember the movie, do you remember the the jump scare of the hands coming through a, yeah. a, like a oh, yeah a of wall? Of course, the wall, uh, yeah, uh, like a cinder block wall. I, yeah. I remember being there for all of the early experiments of what you know different materials we were we were cutting up pieces of styrofoam and painting them and and making them look like cinder block. And so you know it's just some dude in the art department helping out as they as they came up with their experiments of how to pull that off. And the whole thing was shot in a cave. We would take these golf carts deep into a cave. There were many bats. And then we'd find the set. What? Um, And it was 
fucking amazing. I mean, I was like, I was so excited to be watching a movie being made. Um, and after a certain amount of time, they're like, okay, kid, we don't, we don't need you. Um, but, uh, I was thrilled to, to, you know, actually a, a movie by someone I've heard of, um, whose stuff I really like. Um, and I'm getting to see how the sausage is made was, mm. was, was super cool. Um, years later I met, and now I'm spacing on his name. I met one of the producers who worked for Romero and his later films, like who produced monkey shines mm. And uh, we were friendly for a while. And I was always trying to parlay that into a chance to meet Romero, but I never did get to. I'm, oh. I'm, I'm sure Edgar Wright has stories about, I think he met Romero. Um, <laughs> yeah, they hung out for, for a bit in, in the, the Shaun of the Dead resurrection, you know, yeah. of, of that stuff. Yeah. So you so didn't I interact would... with him on, on <clears throat> Day of the Dead at all? No, I would just, you know, I'd see him around, but I, I, I didn't have the nerve to, sure. to bug him. Um, but, you know, since, since I guess what year was Day of the Dead, um, this would have been, yeah, I could have asked him Creepshow questions because this should, this would have been after Creepshow. Yeah. Um, I blew it. But I know. <laughs> and you could have brought those answers, that unique insight. I know the show and the whole show. thing's a disaster. We're going to have to, yeah. Yeah. This We're gonna just, have to just, cancel just the podcast. Just erase it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I mean, it's just, it does remind me, you know, like Romero is not afraid of, uh, of, of broad acting. No. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and there's part of, I mean, there's something authentic to me about this kind of low budget charm of his movies, even though creep show, was probably a bigger production for him mm-hmm. than usual. He still he still gave it that homemade feel. I was reading on Wikipedia, of course, that you know he shot the scenes for the crate at the party in the backyard. That was his house. <laughs> right. He went to Carnegie Mellon. He shot a lot of the crate at Carnegie Mellon. He you know he 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 works at home. The fact that he's you know this guy who worked in Pittsburgh of all places for all of his career. Um, is very endearing to me. I, right. I, I do wonder how he and King first became friendly. I would imagine it's because of a Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, um, I, don't, I, don't, yeah know I don't know that, that story. I think I've heard King tell it before. Like uh, we, there's a, a great um, interview that we've referenced a few times on the show that that uh, is required viewing for any horror fan. Just go to YouTube and search out the Dick Cavett uh, uh, interview with it's Stephen King, uh, George Romero, uh, Peter Straub, and Ira Levin. Uh, and Dick Cavett, wow. and and so the he, you know, they're they're smoking like chimneys and just having a, you know, their their chest hair is is over brimming from you know open throated shirts and you know the like old beat up seventy suits. I think this is like a nineteen eighty or eighty one uh, interview, <laughs> uh, but it's like just prime time stuff. And I think that maybe in that interview they talk about how they they met but I, I do know that king was a huge huge fan of night of the living dead as anybody was you know that that was such a monumental yeah. horror movie um and not just for for you know uh, other artists but you know it, it kind of uh, it, it was one that caught fire it was wildly successful with audiences and stuff so it's it was this uh it's a it's a kind of movie that that uh you know other creatives pr- particularly were awed by and so it wouldn't surprise me if if King, when he got a little bit of power, that they 
he sought out Romero uh, because of that. I know that even at this time they were trying to work at doing uh, an adaptation of the stand, which is always going to be a fascinating, you know, never happened movie right. for me. There's one thing I, w- I want to mention in here in ter- uh, in regards to something to tide you over is that mm. f- by by the time I saw Creep Show, which was a little later than I wish I had watched it younger because I I think I would have you know really gone ape shit for it, but never got around to it until um, I had already seen all the Naked Gun movies, mm. and so right. I predominantly knew Leslie Nielsen as like a funny dude. And I thought it was really like I know now Leslie Nielsen had a storied career long before Naked Gun and, you know, was a dramatic actor and um, all of that. But at that age, I I didn't know that. So I was just blown away to see him like playing a bad guy. That was Mm -hmm. really interesting. Yeah. And he's and he's bad. And (laughs) I think and I think Ted Danson, I mean, I, I looked it up. The creep show came out the same year, I think, as Cheers starting. So I have a feeling. I bet he shot it before mm. Cheers, right? Which is another like like Ed Harris finding someone who was going to become a huge star, <laughs> yeah, and mm-hmm. and then burying them up to their neck uh, <laughs> in the sand. Um, I mean, one of my favorite shots in the whole movie is is the shot of Ted Danson's head underwater, mm-hmm. which turns into a comic book panel. Is just so perfectly that style of of those comic books and it's and and it's funny i mean the whole thing yeah it's very tongue-in-cheek and yet it 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 gets under your skin as being as being disturbing i remember one tales from the crypt that i had uh, there's something to do with devil worshiping and this family staying in a at a bed and breakfast and they realize that people are satanists and they get out and they, they get away and you think they've gotten away. And they, then there's a little panel of the kid in the back seat with this evil grin on his face that he's, he's somehow been turned hmm. Rosemary's baby style. And I just remember it, it just gave me nightmares for whatever reason, the drawing itself of the kid and he's underlit and, <laughs> and his parents think they've escaped. You know, and all these have those kinds of endings. Was it called um, dead and breakfast? Hmm. Cause that's a tales from the crypt ass title. If I've ever heard one and if it's a bed and <laughs> breakfast, you know, they, they I know. got to do it. I know it's so perfect. I'm I'm, I'm going to, I should have tracked it down before I got on this. <laughs> no, it's but, uh, How could you have known? <laughs> what did scott what's your least favorite of the i think the it's segment? father's day honestly um and because and it's only you know this is just as a matter of i've got to pick one that i like the least because i right. like them all um this isn't like creep show too where i can give you a very firm ranking and, and list <laughs> the reasons why you know um but it is just it's very slight but I think you nailed it earlier where it's, you know, a, a perfect tone setter for the rest of the movie. Like, right. you know, this is the this is it in its simplest execution. And this is what kind of movie you're going to be watching. And sure enough, there it is. You know, it's um, it's and also the disco dancing at Harris role. Like, we can't discount that. That's very <laughs> important. Um, no, but it's but beyond that, I I don't think the. uh the twist in it is particularly clever. You can kind of see it coming a mile away. Um, but, you know, it's not it's not bad. It's just it's the one that I, I probably respond to uh, the least. Right. 
Greg, if you could uh, share the fate of any of the victims <laughs> in these stories. So we we've, we've got the uh, let's say the kids getting killed by the zombie dad in Father's Day. Um, you know, uh, poisoned by a meteor and eventually uh, offing yourself to mm. get it over with, buried alive on the beach during tide, killed by a monster in the crate or mm. uh, fully um, infested with a, with cockroaches in your body. <laughs> uh, which, which one of these do you think you would choose? I mean, I know I would choose Ed Harris's fate, which is just to be crushed by a tombstone. Because <laughs> yeah, right. that's just going to be fast. It'll be over. It, yeah, you're just going to, it's just going to break your head open and, and you'll, 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 you'll be dead quick. I, I, either that's that or fair. the crate, because I think the crate deaths, while hor- horrific, didn't go on for too long. The, right. I, I'm, I'm claustrophobic, so so the something to tide you over one is mm-hmm. horrifying, and the Jerry Farrell drowning is horrifying. Like, isn't drowning supposed to be like one of the most painful ways to die too? Yeah, yeah. Fuck I, that. I, I heard that drowning was like one of the least painful ways to die. So See, I can it's believe one that with burning because I'm imagining that like it's just you'd be bur- burning your nerve endings as it goes, right? So I would imagine it would hurt, but. I don't. I think I burning's supposed to be one of the most painful. Maybe I've gone backwards. I don't know. Yeah. I just don't want to drown. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be buried alive on the on the beach. I think I would. I think I. Could, I think I would go crate on this one. Get torn apart by that. Beast. Uh, well, here's a here's a bit of advice. Do not uh, type into Google uh, most painful ways to die, because then the very first thing that comes up is a, a helpline saying help is available. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I, I'm probably now going to be on some sort of registry for for uh, burning to death is the number one on like all the lists that I'm I'm seeing. Really? You feel immense pain. Your skin cracks and peels. Fat leaks out. Blood leaks out. Oh, yikes. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to do that. Um, does it have anything to say about drowning? Uh, I'm scared to type it into Google now. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to get forwarded to some sort of waterboard fetish site. I don't know. It doesn't say It doesn't say in all these, and I'm scared to click on these links for... For these these websites I've never heard of that are gonna like infect my computer. So what does it uh, say about what ahead. does it say about having your body in, entirely uh taken over by cockroaches? Mm, uh, yes. to totally chill, actually. That it's like the <laughs> That's like Kevorkian. there's a list of totally chill ways to die and, and yeah. being infested by cockroaches is Oh, like you're gonna want top. these cockroaches in you, baby. That goes down <laughs> smooth. <laughs> you would just suffocate, right? In that case. Like they're not going to eat you from the inside out. You're not going to live that long. I don't think he, I mean, I guess they do, they do like uh, get on it, but like cockroaches don't bite you, right? They can't really bite. So you're right to suffocating, but I think he probably dies of fright and, you know, before anything else. Cause this, these are the thing like just being dirty and these dirty things are like the, the things that he's obsessed with, right? That character. So so I think he probably dies of fright, which also is kind of a terrifying way to go out. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think, think a heart attack, heart attack probably is what happened to old E.G. Marshall. <laughs> he should have been nicer to his tenants. That's all I'm saying. Um, yeah, no, uh, I, I'm, I think Greg's like found the, the best one. Just get crushed. Yeah. 
crush it. I, I don't like the idea <laughs> of being eaten by shit. Like, you know, it's like, I, not that I think anybody's like, you know, I'm totally, that's how I want to go out is eaten by a lion, uh, you know, or whatever. But the, just the concept of, of something like tearing you apart and you still, and eating you and you still are alive to feel it is not, uh, not something that I'm totally uh, uh, ex- excited for. So, <laughs> Ah, uh, fuck, man. I, I'd probably, yeah. The you you already grabbed the best one. I, I wouldn't want to be drowned. Uh, the slow, the slow, painful. You know, losing your humanity. You know, death that Jordy Verrill has is is not appealing to me either. Yeah, no, that's yeah. awful. I don't know. This is you, you. You've created quite a quite a question. That's that uh, is for sure getting me on list. So I well, really appreciate with Jordy Verrill. Like I'm thinking when you're getting taken over by that moss, it's very painful. So there, I, what I'm imagining is, you know, he kills himself because of the suffering of it. So it mm-hmm. seems like that one is, you know, there'd be a lot of build up to it. And I don't I, I want to get it over with. Right. right? Which is kind of why I mean, the, the, the headstone thing that, that Greg mentioned is is pretty much perfect. Mm-hmm. But with the with the, you know, getting torn apart by a beast, I can imagine like. I don't know if if. You know, that's a that's a scenario where I can imagine being frightened to death. You'd be so yeah. like fucking like what bewildered to encounter like a monster in real life that I think it would just snap your mind. And then once it starts like ripping you apart, you'd be like, what the fuck, dude? You know, so <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, you you'd know, be like, I shouldn't have done acid back right. in the 70s. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd be in shock for that one. So that's why I, I was thinking that might be a, a good way out. Yeah. Also, I would just like to see a monster, I think would be pretty cool. I mean, even if that's the last thing I see, but you get to see a monster. I, I try to like put that into like real world expect, you know, things like, and then I start flashing on like, you guys ever watch, you see that video of like that dude that was hiking and then the fucking mountain lion was like, like right on him and he's like got his his camera phone on it and he's like walking slowly backwards and the mountain lion's like, running up and then stopping and growling yeah, yeah. and like and, and that shit gives me so much anxiety i can't yeah i can't tell you like the guy made it out fine and safe and he did the right thing he didn't run and you know whatever but like the idea of something hunting you and wanting you for its meal is well just it, it taps into some you know caveman you know fucking yeah DNA that i have you're transposing this onto real world equivalents you know, yes. you can't do that. It's got to be a it's got to be a big wolf monster in a crate. <laughs> I mean, I understand what you're saying, that it, it it's serving the same function. Right. Right. You know, it's it's a it's a, a beastie and it's got claws and fangs and, and what have you. But I think that I think there's a big difference in that. What we're talking about is an imaginary creature versus versus, say, you know, a thing you might see at the zoo. And uh, you know what? If it was me, I would just wouldn't be near Fluffy's crate, you know. So yeah. I'd probably survive that one, um, unless uh, I piss somebody off enough Fair. for them to set me up and try to throw me into the monster. Um, Did y'all know that this movie premiered at Cannes? Really? Yeah, nineteen eighty-two. Huh. Wow, May in May of eighty-two, and then it uh, it hit theaters in November same year. How long was the standing ovation for it? <laughs> Seventy-nine <laughs> minutes. Straight. <laughs> uh, just a sidebar on that for a second, Greg. What do you make of the on? I don't know if you read the trades oh, yeah. or I whatever. What, like, what the? F- why are <laughs> why are we timing standing ovations? Yeah. Like, what the fuck is that about? 
It's so weird. I mean, I, I, I get the idea of like wanting to rank things because it's fun to, to, it's a fun mental exercise to say, well, I, I like this thing a little bit better than that for these reasons. But to like, before anyone's seen anything, right. try and try and tell people its value by the length of it's just, it's like, seriously, have we just run out of ways to talk about movies anymore? I, <laughs> right. It's like, why? It's not yeah, indicative it's really of anything. And it feels like this is the year this happened. Did they yeah, do it well, last year? It's it's happened in years past, but this year it feels almost like a prank. Like yeah. they're, <laughs> they're reporting it like this one got a six minute standing ovation. It's like, that's not even worth like telling anyone about. Numbers. Right. And also, don't you think it's fucking weird that people would stand there applauding for like 20 minutes? I don't yeah. I when I read those things, I'm like, I don't know that I believe this. 20 minutes. <laughs> like the length of a Seinfeld episode, people stood up and clapped. Like that just seems outrageous to me. Yeah, that seems like they're trying to break the record. Like they're they're all staying there looking at their I, iPhones with a timer on saying, We have to fucking beat the record. Holy forward. shit. You might have just Okay, what did white noise get? We gotta <laughs> Yeah, we gotta beat that. You may have just cracked the code on this. Maybe mm-hmm. audience members are going to Cannes and their goal is to walk out of there and being able to say, I was part of the longest standing ovation. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I stood there like an idiot clapping for right. 20 some odd minutes at a time. Cannes a weird vibe. Have, have either of you gone? No. Uh, I actually, it saved my first movie day trippers because we did not get into Sundance we went to slam dance, but we didn't sell it. But then it somehow got into international critics week. It can. Oh, wow. Um, and, and we were able to sell it from that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's wild. You know, it's like one minute you're seeing these famous stars and, and serious filmmakers being photographed on the red carpet. The next minute you're hanging out with like people who are in these like, B movie vampires, <laughs> lesbian vampire films and stuff, and it's you know, frankly, the lesbian vampire uh, ladies were a lot of fun. And, and, uh, <laughs> I bet. And because yeah, uh, you have the market on the one side, and and uh, yeah, as well, and now, and where the market's kind of like, um, it, I don't know if anybody knows listening will know the American film market or AFM, where it is one of the weirdest things because it's all about like like huckstering and selling international rights and and pre-selling movie posters so it's kind of got that roger corman hunger you know but like it the problem is it has the roger corman from all angles of his career from the the (laughs) early good stuff to the to the later like you know jesus the murdering velociraptor or whatever kind of movies um and uh, but can so can has that aspect as well as being like the ritziest you cannot enter this unless you're wearing a thousand dollar tuxedo you know (laughs) kind of thing it is it is such a bizarre mishmash of tones much like our topic by the way that we keep straying away from (laughs) uh much like creep show um but uh but yeah can's fucking weird i'm glad it saved your movie though uh it did and and i'm forever grateful to those french people i think we've probably covered everything we need to with uh creep show and can and you know uh different <laughs> the only various thing, ways the only to get last murdered creep show thing i would add is uh when i looked it up i saw that there was a bernie Wrightson comic book adaptation yeah. did you guys have have you ever seen that yeah yeah the, you I, can find those pretty commonly and they've reprinted them uh, a few times as well but i my under my memory 
of this. Not that I got one, but my memory of like looking into this when I would see them at like used comic stores and and stuff when growing up was that uh, the lore around it was that when you saw the movie in the theater that that uh, that they gave you one. They either gave you one or it was available for sale at the like popcorn counter. So you could like walk away with the graphic novel, essentially version of, of yeah. Show. I'm gonna check it out. I love his drawing style. Oh yeah, he's one of the greats. Tied deeply to Stephen King as well. Cycle of the Werewolf, he illustrated, and uh, oh yeah, and uh, Dark Tower Five, right? That was Wrightson, I think. Was the was Wolves I've, of the Color? Yes. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. So yeah, he's uh you know, he's one of the greats. Good dude too. I I, I met him uh, once before he passed, and he was he was super nice. Awesome. I love yeah. hearing that. Well, um. We know you gotta we you gotta wrap up, Greg. But uh, let's um let's loop back around to to Fletch really quick. Uh, where can people find it this week and uh, and in November? And you know, let's uh, the floor is yours. You know, let's let's tell people <laughs> where to get, get this bad boy. It, this Friday, the sixteenth, it'll be available uh, at most major markets uh, and movie theaters uh, at some of uh, some of the chains and in independent theaters around the country. It'll also simultaneously be on um, demand on your television on Apple or Amazon or wherever you might want to pay for it. Uh, I hope people give it a chance because it's, you know, it's sort of that smaller mid tier comedy slash genre movie that don't end up in theaters all that often these mm. days. The huge, the huge ones might, but the, these, these sort of medium-sized movies that we all used to go to a lot are disappearing a little bit on <laughs> yes. the screens. Um, and it's weird to me how many comedies go straight to streaming now. It's just right. it's like, I thought we'd like to all laugh in the same room. Right. Um, but wherever you see it, I'll be grateful. And so after, uh, after it does it, it, that run, it'll be on Showtime in uh, the end of October. Um and I'm very proud of it. I, I'm I'm so glad you liked it, Scott. It's I. It was a real labor of love. I hope they let me do another one with John. I I know which book I'd like to adapt, and uh, maybe they'll give us a little more time and money, and uh, <laughs> and so we could, you know, build on it. Build on the first one. The first one's pretty modest, but I hope that uh, I, I think that it's 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 still a good time for the audience. Absolutely, it is. Um, definitely check that out, however you can, folks. Um. And Greg, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for it making is. a good Fletch movie. And, uh, you know, we look forward to whatever you do next. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Eric. This is an absolute pleasure. Uh, I've been following you guys for a long time, and uh, and I love what you do. Many thanks to Greg Matola for joining us for yet another lively discussion about Creepshow, which mm-hmm. we cannot ever talk about Creepshow and not hyper fixate on ed harris's disco dancing at some point yeah it just comes with the package folks you gotta you gotta expect that it may point. be the most notable thing in the movie to me at this point um <laughs> we've we've gone over this one several times and uh, i think i think we ought to i think we ought to put creep show on the back burner for a little while just because um uh there's only so much to say about that one so uh maybe that one goes in the vault for a little well, while I, I didn't tell you that like francis ford coppola picked creep show right so well, you tell francis that I said he's doing uh, trucks now. <laughs> he's doing Creep Show three. <laughs> <laughs> the cope. That would be the most amazing thing ever. You get like somebody of a filmmaker of that statue, the guy who made The Godfather, and we force him, we force him to watch Creep Show fucking three. That would be like all time. We just have to retire the podcast if we ever did that. We pulled something like that off. Yeah. 
Spielberg. Get him to do fucking, I don't know. What's a really bad one? Make him do the Tommyknockers miniseries. Dolan's maybe. Cadillac. Spielberg yeah, on Dolan's Cadillac. Cadillac. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, so yeah, thank you uh, to Greg for coming in for that delightful guest. We had a great time with him. And uh, I, I I imagine you'll hear him back from him on the show at some point. He seemed to have a yeah. great time. Yeah, he seemed to have fun. And he was really enthusiastic in the communications, you know, about doing it. He was the one who pushed f- for it to happen. It's really... Uh, Really good dude. So very yeah. happy to have him on the show. And speaking of good dudes, we have another very exciting guest, a good guest next week covering a very interesting title. We are doing a short story next week uh, called Suffer the Little Children, which is one of King's earliest short stories that he wrote in pre carry It's one of those city mag shorts. And it was then published again in Nightmares and Dreamscapes. And it's a really kind of gnarly uh, tale about uh, I don't know evil kids I think is a yeah. good way to put it if you haven't read it and a much darker ending than I think anyone any of us uh, really realized headed into this one I was like oh yeah fuck yeah that story and then uh, then we all sat down to talk about it and we're like so about the ending um, <laughs> uh, in the so year of a- our lord 2022 it's a little bit tougher to to swallow that ending but yes. it is it is a really nasty piece of work by King and our guest uh, chose it because it's one of their favorite shorts that he's ever written. And uh, what can we say to hint at the guest? An author, or author, comic or book author, author um, yes. screenwriter, um, multiple projects coming your way. Uh, very very busy man. Yes, yeah. very busy man. Uh, his first time on the King cast, but uh, yeah. someone we have known um, for for quite a while now, actually. So uh, this was. It was a great opportunity to have him on the show to promote his new novel, a new movie he's got coming out, and to talk about this very dark little short story with us. Yeah. And what's uh, happening this Friday on our Patreon? Uh, This Friday on the Patreon, we are having a friendly little chat with Shelbyville Game Master, Jacob Hall. We're interested to talk to him about, uh, you know, managing the campaign and and what goes into GMing a, a game like that and... You know, we understand that it's been a while since you've heard anything from the Shelbyville folks. Uh, and I know we keep telling you we're working on it. We're working on it. We are <laughs> continuing to work on it. It's it's we're we're uh, we're trying real hard. Um, but, <laughs> you know, this will maybe we can get a few details out of uh, Jacob that he'd be willing to share about the new season. And, um, you know, uh, maybe nothing too spoilery, but just to whet the appetite. And uh, we're always happy to talk to our friend Jacob. So that'll be a, a fun little chat on the Patreon this Friday. That's at patreon.com backslash the Kingcast. If you are not already subscribed, you are missing out on a full 50% of the show. Uh, and we have tons and tons, by which I mean well over 100 bonus episodes, commentaries, interviews, weirdo little one-off episodes, you name it for you to dive The Shelbyville in. finale, which hasn't gone public yet to, yes, uh, to the people guests. at large. Elijah special Wood. guest, yeah, Frodo Baggins himself, fighting giant spiders again. Yeah, classic. So uh, I guess that's it for this week, folks. Uh, we'll see you next uh, next Wednesday. All right, bye. The Kingcast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. Thank you.